Welcome to the study of God's Word, recorded live from Calvary Chapel in Aurora, Colorado. To learn more about the many resources available through Abounding Grace Media, visit us online at calvaryaurora.org or download our free app on all platforms. And now, let's open our Bibles and study God's Word. Thank you, Matt. How about Miranda? Man, that voice. And that story, what a powerful story of God's redemptive grace, right? We just want to say to all of our divorced friends, we see you. You matter. You're not less than. I'm so glad you're here today. Today's message is for everybody, but I think it might even be especially meaningful to those of you who have been through some of the same things that we have. Are you guys ready for a Bible study? All right. In just a moment, I'm going to tell you where to turn, but first I have a question for you. The question is, if you were a superhero, what superpower would you have? Now, as you can imagine, I've given this some thought, only I can't decide. Like, I can't choose between super strength or invisibility or, or flight. But you know, I've even thought about the costume. Like, I'd want a really cool logo on my chest. I'd want a cool helmet or mask, maybe both. And, uh, and then there's the secret identity to think about. You know, something like Peter Parker, ah, not so much. Bruce Wayne, maybe. Uh, Tony Stark, that's what I'm talking about. And let's not forget about like the base or the headquarters, your very own Batcave or Fortress of Solitude. How awesome would that be? Uh, kids today have got it made, right? They really, really do. How many of you, when you were a kid, were into superheroes? Anybody? Uh, maybe still? A little bit or a lot. <laughs> when I was a kid, I was into superheroes. I like to watch superhero cartoons on TV. I like to read superhero comic books. And sometimes, if I'm keeping it real, sometimes I like to pretend that I was a superhero. Now, this is why I say kids today have it made because, you know, like Miranda said, we were on the road nine months last year, and after a short break, we're back on the road for six more months. Our daughter, Odessa, we call her Des, she passes a lot of driving hours with her iPad. Between their cell phones and their tablets and their gaming systems, kids today are within one, you know, press of their finger of being able to pretend to be almost anyone or to do almost anything. When I was a kid, if I wanted to play superhero, mom did not hand me an iPad. She handed me a tattered old bath towel and a safety pin. Man, I'd wrap that towel around my shoulders and mom would help me get it pinned up close and hours of fun would follow. And kids today would get like five minutes out of that. The first four would be spent complaining about how lame it was, but we could make it work all day long, right? But even as adults, isn't there something inside of us that wants to be heroic? Isn't there something inside of you that wants to do something heroic? Some part of you that longs to live heroically. That's what we're talking about today. So let's go ahead and turn to Joshua chapter 2. Here we're going to meet a woman who was a hero, a woman who did something heroic, a woman who learned to live heroically. And from her life, we're going to learn three things that we can do if we too are going to live heroically. That's my title, Living Heroically. And before we start with verse 1, I'm going to say a quick prayer, even as you're still finding your place. Father, thank you for this worship gathering. Lord, we've been singing together. We've been praying together. Now we're ready to study together. We welcome your presence here. We invite you to speak to us and, Lord, to transform us. Lord, I pray that you would fill our hearts with hope today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If we're going to live heroically, the first thing we have to do is let go of the past. Now, I'll tell you it right up front. We're going to start real slow, but we're going to build momentum and we're going to finish fast. So bear with me. First of all, let go of the past. Verse 1 says... Now Joshua, the son of Nun, sent out two men from Acacia Grove to spy secretly, saying, Go, view the land, especially Jericho. So they went and came to the house of a harlot named Rahab and lodged there. Now this is a generation after the Exodus. If you haven't read the book, you've seen the movie, right? The Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston. Maybe you went the animated route. You saw the Prince of Egypt. In either case... This story comes right after that story. So Joshua has succeeded Moses. 
The people have crossed the river and they're ready now to conquer the land that God has promised to them when they come to this place called Acacia Grove. Now, if that place name sounds familiar, it totally should. It was there in Acacia Grove, a generation before that the men of Israel, their fathers, were seduced by the women of Moab. And so long story short, as a result of their unfaithfulness to God and their unfaithfulness to their families, 24,000 people died. Which means that some went forward without a husband. Others went forward without a father or a son or a brother. And you know that every year on an anniversary or a birthday, they would be reminded You know for sure as they gathered in this place where all of these things happened, not so long before, they'd be reminded about how the choices of one generation affect the next. It makes me think about how I've been affected by the choices my parents made. And it challenges me to think about how the choices that I'm making affect my daughters, one grown, one still at home, and now even a granddaughter. Maybe your family, your family of origin, isn't so different from mine. Has there been something in your family, something harmful, something hurtful, something that's gone on way too long, like like generation after generation? In my family, that thing has been alcoholism. My dad was an alcoholic. In fact, were he here in this service, he would probably describe himself as a recovering alcoholic, just because that's the language lots of people use today. But I'm so happy to tell you, my dad's been sober now for years not before his alcohol abuse cost him his marriage to my mother, and not before it very nearly cost him his second marriage. But to see the way he's put his life back together is amazing. I'm so proud of my dad. Like, his life is so much better since he got sober. But it wasn't just my dad. It was his dad. My grandfather was an alcoholic. I don't know about you, but you know, when I talk about a loved one, especially a loved one who's already passed, I I try to see them in my mind. I try to picture them the way I remember them. Do you do that too? Only I'm struggling to do that today because, well, truth is, I could probably count on one hand the number of times I saw my grandfather in my whole life. Uh, He was, you know, alive well into my adulthood. I should have lots and lots of happy memories of time spent with, with grandpa. Instead, I can barely remember what he looked like. Um, he was alienated from the rest of our family. He and my grandmother were married and divorced twice to each other. They were married, they got divorced, they tried again, they failed again. And no doubt my grandfather's alcohol abuse was a major reason why both attempts failed. It's not hard to imagine what that meant for my dad, right? For my dad, that meant growing up largely without a father figure in the home. And it meant growing up largely in poverty, My dad and his brothers, my uncles, lived with their mother, my grandmother, who lived with her mother, my great-grandmother, in public housing in San Bernardino, California, the projects known as Waterman Gardens. And you know that had to affect the way my dad raised me and my sister Cheryl. It's been some years now since my grandfather passed. I was pastoring Calvary Chapel in Austin, Texas, a church I founded in 1991 and led for 18 years. And I was in California just a couple of months after the funeral. I was there attending our annual pastor's conference. And as I often did, I stuck around an extra day or two to visit my dad in Orange County. So there I am in my dad's living room as my dad describes to me what it was like for him to travel to Stockton where my grandfather had spent his final years. What it was like to enter his house what it was like to sort through his personal belongings. And just then, my dad asked me if I would wait right there while he went in the other room. When he came back, he was carrying a box. Now, I want to talk about this box for a moment. I have one like it, and I'm guessing that some of you do too. Do you have a box, a special place where you put like keepsakes, mementos? Mine is a small wooden box that says San Diego on the front. I got it as a kid on a field trip to San Diego. Inside is my high school class ring, some coins from other countries, some cool rocks, and probably some knickknacks and odds and ends that have made their way in over time. But can you relate? Do you have a box like that? So Grandpa had a box. My dad, he, he took the lid off the box and started moving things around inside and then taking things out one at a time. First, he took out a document. It was a certificate of divorce. I don't remember now whether it was from their first or second. 
he reached back inside and he took out a picture of my Uncle Bill on my grandfather's knee when Bill was a baby. Bill was later killed in action in Vietnam. And then my dad reached back in that box and took out my kindergarten picture and my first grade picture and my second grade picture. I was stunned. I never would have dreamed that my grandfather had pictures of me. Even though I can barely remember his face, he thought that my face had a place in his box. I have to admit, I felt conflicted then, and I still do. There's a part of me that feels really, really good that I made Grandpa's box. And there's another part of me that feels really, really bad. And that's the part of me that realizes that my box and your box are likely boxes filled with memories, but his was a box filled with regrets. My grandfather's was a box filled with reminders of all the things that he'd had but lost, all the things that he might have enjoyed right up until the end of his life, but instead didn't get to enjoy at all. And so whether we're talking about grandpa's box or whether we're talking about the backstory to Joshua chapter two, it's a reminder that there has to come a time in our lives when we say enough is enough that it doesn't matter what has happened in our families or for how long or whether we ourselves have struggled in the same way as I have. We get to say it stops here, it stops now, it stops with this generation, it stops with me. Can you feel the mood in Acacia Grove? And it's not even just that. Do you guys see the reference to the two spies? See, that too is a throwback. A generation before, Moses sent 12 spies. And if you know this story, you know that 10 of them came back with a negative report. 10 of them were like, there's no way we can do this. I don't care who God says we are. I don't care what he says we can do. There's no way. We shouldn't even try. Two came back with a positive report. One of those was Joshua, by the way. And those two guys are like, oh, we so got this. Like we are exactly who God says we are. We can do exactly what God says we can do. Why are we wasting time arguing? We should be taking the land right now. Now sadly, as is often the case, even in a community of faith like a local church, the negative voices carried the day. And as a result, well, as a result, an entire generation was doomed to die in the wilderness. Their sentence 40 years with time served. For the best part of 40 years, they would wander through the desert waiting for everyone of a certain age to die. That's a lot of funerals. In fact, we can do the math. If there were 1.2 million adults, and that's considered a conservative estimate, and if they used every hour of daylight to bury people, we're talking about funerals year after year, month after month, week after week, day after day, like seven or eight times per hour they were burying someone for 40 years. And you know that every single time another body slid beneath the sand, they would be reminded about what happens when we listen to the wrong voices. What happens when we listen to anyone who says anything other than what God says about who we are and what we can do? Has that been your experience? You know, as we travel the country, we meet people who say that like that's all they can remember. Like their whole life has been that way. For you, it could have been a parent or a sibling. It might have been a teacher or a coach. It could have been a a Sunday school teacher or a youth group leader. In your adult life, maybe it's been someone that you worked for or with. It could even be your spouse. But for as long as you can remember, you've been beat down by this negative message about you that, that is at odds with what God says about you. And if that's been your experience, I am so sorry. That can be really hard for a person to overcome. Isn't it true, though, that even if we don't relate to that, at least as like a lifelong thing, that our biggest problem isn't with the story that they tell us about us, but with the story we tell ourselves. That little voice in your head that tells you over and over again that you're not enough. You know what it sounds like. I'm not handsome enough. I'm not beautiful enough. I'm not tall enough or thin enough. I'm not intelligent enough. I'm not athletic enough. I'm not educated enough. I'm not trained enough. I'm not cool enough. I'm not sophisticated enough. I'm not spiritual enough. I'm not good enough. Guys, this is one more of those things where there has to come a time in our lives where we say enough is enough. That going forward, we're not going to listen to anyone, even if it's us. 
We're not going to listen to anyone who says anything other than what God says about who we are or what we can do. Can you feel the mood in Acacia Grove? Now, with that backstory, we rejoin the narrative. And you notice that these spies were sent to gather intelligence, it says, especially of a place called Jericho. And when you get home today, if you Google Jericho, one of the top hits will describe Jericho as one of the oldest continuously inhabited cities in the world. That's interesting, right? What we're most interested in, though, is what it was like in ancient times. What was Jericho like when our story takes place? And maybe the first thing you need to know is that the ancient city of Jericho was heavily fortified with not one, but two walls. Apparently, the king of Jericho had promised voters that if elected, he would build a wall, and Moab would pay for it. I don't know. (laughs) Whatever you think about walls today, in ancient times, a wall really was a matter of security. In ancient Jericho, a wall was the difference between a good night's sleep and getting killed in your sleep. Your wife raped, your kids taken as slaves. That's the world they lived in. But what would happen if having built a wall, you ran out of room? Well, then you'd build another wall. So picture a second larger concentric circle and the space between the walls, suburbs. Old Jericho, new Jericho. Now keep that in the back of your mind because we're going to come back to it. But first, I want you to notice that no sooner did the spies' feet hit the ground in Jericho than they're found in the red light district. What? Like if you were new to the Bible, you would never see that coming. You would never go to turn the page and be like, I know where they're going to be when I turn the page. There's no way, right? In a split second, we've gone from talking about the world's oldest city to talking about the world's oldest profession. It's like, how did we get here? Maybe I should clarify. I don't think that the spies were at Rahab's place to get under the covers. They were there undercover. The success of their mission depended upon not drawing attention to themselves. So I imagine that as they traveled to Jericho that day, they joined uh, or were joined by other travelers to Jericho. They didn't tunnel into the city. They walked through open city gates. They, They followed the flow of traffic to those parts of the city where tourists would go. Um, but, but maybe we shouldn't be too quick to dismiss the value that the spies might have placed in Rahab as an intelligence asset. Think of it. There's no telling who she knew or what. It was reasonable for them to think that she might actually have access to information that no one else they would get close to would have access to. To me, it makes perfect sense that they would want to talk to Rahab. And if there was anything inappropriate about their visit to Rahab's place, the Bible doesn't tell us so. But don't you love that the Bible tells us the truth about Rahab? I love that for so many reasons. Here's one, and then we'll keep moving. I love it because in the culture at large today, but also in these four walls, in the church, we're hearing so much about authenticity, about transparency, about vulnerability. And like so many other things we talk about at church, we are so much better at talking about it than we are at practicing it. You know what I'm talking about. Those of you who have been doing church for long, those of you who, like me, have had more than one church home in your life, you know, maybe you've had many over a lifetime, you were, you were at some point, someplace when someone got brave and found their voice. They told their story like Miranda did this morning. Or maybe they opened up and shared, you know, the ways that they were struggling. Or, or maybe they even admitted to having some honest doubts about things that everyone else in the group took for granted. And then you watched in horror as the people around them shamed them, shushed them, and ultimately shunned them. And you quickly learned that church is not always a safe place to keep it real, no matter what they say. But shouldn't it be? If I were new to faith, if I were reading the Bible for the first time, and I stumbled upon this story where the hero is a prostitute, I would say to myself, thank goodness I have finally found myself someplace where it is safe to keep it real, to tell the truth about myself. Now, I'm so glad for you that you're in a church that values as a distinctive part of its culture, grace. What if we found ourselves someplace where that wasn't the case? Is there anything we could do about it? Or would we have to wait for someone else to figure it out and for someone else to fix it? I think we could fix it. I think if we all decided to do two things, number one, if we all decided to be brave and tell our stories, 
And number two, if we all decided that when it was the next person's turn, we absolutely would not shame, shush, or shun them. We could transform culture wherever we found ourselves. Now, in fairness to Rahab, she may have done what she did as a matter of survival. Am I saying that what Rahab did was okay? No, it was totally not okay. Just like so many things that I've done are totally not okay. Let's take a minute and think about what it was like for women in the ancient world. Maybe I should begin by pointing out that today we're talking about things like equal pay. And though we've made a lot of progress in our country, I think most people would agree that there's still work to do. So it's so good that we're having that conversation and that we're continuing to make positive change. Imagine what it was like for women in the ancient world. Imagine what it was like for Rahab. If you were a single woman in ancient Jericho and you weren't married, so obviously if you're single, and so you don't have a husband providing for you, but you also don't have like an extended family that is doing anything to help you financially with your physical and material needs, you were in a fight just to survive. It's not like Rahab could just put on her career hat and reinvent herself. It's not like she could, you know, jump on LinkedIn and start networking. The ancient world didn't work like that. So many times in the ancient world, and maybe, just maybe more often than we think in the modern world, there have been women so desperate to find a way to survive another day, another week, another month, that they've done things, thought about doing things, done things that up until then they never would have dreamed of doing. All this to say, however upsetting it is for us to learn this about Rahab, that's not half as upsetting as it was for her to live it. And the other thing I'm saying is, aren't we learning that life is so much better when we take even five minutes to put ourselves in someone else's shoes before we decide that they don't matter, that they don't count, that they don't have any value, or that we know everything there is to know about what they're doing or why they're doing it? Because we don't. Could Rahab live heroically? Well, not unless she let go of the past. Think of all the guilt from her past. Think of all the guys, all the hookups. Do you have a past? Are there, are there skeletons in your closet? I mean, the truth is we've all done things that we're ashamed of, things that we're embarrassed about, uh, things that we feel guilty for. But one of the biggest mistakes that we can make in our life is when we allow guilt from our past to rob us of the future that God has for us. And you know why we do that? We do it because we don't get forgiveness. I don't mean that we haven't received it. I mean that we can't seem to wrap our minds around the idea that God forgives and forgets. There are so many examples of this in the Bible. Um, I'm thinking of one. I'm thinking of that verse that describes God taking our sin and dumping it into the sea. You guys know that one? I love that verse. In fact, I want you to get a visual on it right now. I want you to imagine that as I'm speaking, God is gathering up all of my sin. That's right. Every sin that Alan Rigg has ever committed, he's rounding them all up, okay? So you should make yourselves comfortable because this could take a while. We're waiting. Wait for it. It's awkward, I know. It's my sin. Okay, he's got it. Now, he's dumping it into the Mediterranean Sea. I want you to picture the storm surge. As beaches all around the Mediterranean begin disappearing, coastal cities are filling with water as my sin sinks into the deep, dark depths of the Mediterranean in a field of bubbles and only finally hits the seafloor, sending silt in every direction that slowly settles until finally no one can see my sin. No one's going to find it. God himself isn't going to dredge it up because he promises not to. With that picture in mind, do you think there could ever come a time when I'm allowing guilt from my past, or you are allowing guilt from your past, to rob us of our future, the future that God has for us, that God might look at us and say, I'm over it, why aren't you? Have you allowed a handful of guilty memories to control your life, to define you, to tell you who you are? You know, those things you feel guilty about, they are a part of your story, but that's not the whole story. God is still writing your story. And this is one more of those things where we get to say, enough is enough. Going forward, I'm not going to live from this guilty place anymore. I'm going to live from this forgiven place instead. Now, I don't even think it was just the guilt from her past. I think there was hurt from her past. We're going to learn 
soon that she did in fact have family in Jericho. So is it conjecture on my part? Of course it is. But if she did have family in Jericho, and, and if as best we can tell, they were not helping her financially or trying in any way to rescue her from the life that she was caught in, is it not at least possible that they'd had a falling out? That she was hurt, that they were hurt, that there was more than enough hurt to go around? There usually is. Have you been hurt? Is there like an undercurrent of anger, of bitterness, of resentment in your life? I mean, the truth is we've all been hurt. And you know why hurt from our past robs us of the future that God has for us? Because we don't give forgiveness. So guilt robs us because we don't get forgiveness. Hurt robs us because we don't give it. You guys have heard that saying, hurt people hurt people, right? And you know by experience that it's true, don't you? I mean, here's you and me. When we get hurt, this is how we are. This is our posture right here. It's like, mm-mm, no, I'm not going to forgive you. You owe it to me. You owe it to me to be miserable for a long time. Like, you owe it to me to be miserable for the rest of your life. It gets so bad. We're laying awake in bed at night. We're not counting sheep. We're telling ourselves stories like this one, like, oh, I hope I never see them again. No, I hope I do because I've got a thing or two to say to them. Like, what if I ran into them at the grocery store, the hardware store? I'd act like I didn't even know them. That'd be good. Well, no, because I got these zingers I've been working on, so I'd have to acknowledge them. So I'd go up to them, and I'd say this, and they'd be speechless. It'd be awesome. Well, no, because I got more zingers, so they'd have to respond. So I'd go up to them, and I'd say this, and they'd say that, and it'd be really stupid, and then I'd say this. Meanwhile, here they are at home. I mean, they don't even know we're thinking that stuff. Or worse, they know and they totally do not care. This is why we say that forgiveness is a gift we give ourselves. When I forgive that person who's hurt me, it effectively ends any control that they have over my life. Now, if you've been hurt recently or deeply, I know what you're thinking. I can read it like a thought bubble over your head. Who is this guy and who invited him? Right? Because it's like, who am I? I don't know what they did. I don't know how much it hurt. Um, who am I to tell you to forgive? I understand that. Maybe it would help if I differentiated between two very different things. There's a world of difference between reconciliation and forgiveness. I'm talking about forgiveness. Reconciliation takes two. For that reason alone, it isn't always possible. Now, you'll hear that in church. Can I add something you're not as likely to hear in church or not likely to hear in church as often? This is like director's cut. This is like, this is like the bonus added scene. So, so I would say that not only is reconciliation not always possible, but it isn't always, not always, not in every single last situation, desirable. Take my dad's story as an example. For someone in recovery, there are just some people you don't ever need to reconnect with. Take my wife's story. For my wife and our daughter, reconciliation with their perpetrator would not have been safe. But while it takes two to reconcile, it takes one to forgive. You can, I can, all by ourselves decide to let go of past hurt. Yeah, but Alan, if I forgive them, I'm, I'm saying that what they did wasn't wrong. I'm saying that it didn't hurt. You'd be saying no such thing. You know what you'd be saying to them? You'd be saying what you did was wrong, what you did did hurt, but holding this relational IOU over your head is tearing me up, so I'm tearing it up. I refuse to lose another day of my life to this feeling of angst that I have had 24-7, 365 for longer than I care to admit, so I'm letting go of past hurt. If you allowed a handful of hurtful memories to control your life, to define you, to tell you who you are, you know those things that hurt you, they're a part of your story, but that's not the whole story. God is still writing your story. And guys, this is one more of those things where we get to say enough is enough. Going forward, I'm not going to live from this hurt place anymore. I'm going to live from this forgiving place instead. To live heroically. We're going to let go of the past. We're going to let go of past guilt and hurt. And number two, we're going to face our fears. Let's pick up the pace. Verse two. It says, it was told the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, men have come here tonight from the children of Israel to search out the country. So the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered your house, for they have come to search out all the country. Then the woman took the two men and hid them. So she said, Yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. 
And it happened as the gate was being shut when it was dark that the men went out. Where the men went, I do not know. Pursue them quickly, for you may overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hidden them with the stalks of flax which she had laid in order on the roof. Then the men pursued them by the road to the Jordan to the fords. And as soon as those who pursued them had gone out, they shut the gate. So the spies had been followed. They'd been found out. One way or another, it had come to this. Could Rahab live heroically? Well, not unless she faced her fears. Fear is such a universal experience. Have you guys ever seen that website, phobialist.com? You got to check it out. When you get home, Google phobialist.com. They have cataloged over 500 phobias. It's like you're scared of stuff you hadn't even thought of yet. It's crazy. Um, anybody here afraid of heights? Yeah. So you're not even raising your hand all the way up over your head because that would be like too far off the ground. Um, anybody have like an unnatural fear of needles? Like nobody likes to get a shot or a blood draw, but for you, that's a really bad day. What about like an unnatural fear of spiders? Like for you, that's the real home invasion. And who's, who's afraid to raise their hand in public? Okay, you pass, you pass. I see several hands. I think there's coffee somewhere. You guys should go fellowship. Rest of us have more work to do. Fear is so powerful, so powerful. Like, like have you ever been so scared that you did something you wouldn't normally do? I've totally done that. Or have you ever been so scared that you didn't do something you normally would do? I've totally done that too. That's how crazy powerful fear is. And maybe that's why the most common command in the Bible is, do not be afraid. Say it with me. Do not be afraid. Now, we're going to come back to that verse in just a little while. But isn't that amazing? Of all the do's and don'ts in the Bible, that that's the one that appears the most frequently that's definitely something for us to know and, and, and to ponder. Um, but before we come back to that thought, I've been creating this physical timeline, right? I've been talking about guilt and hurt like it's over here in our past. And now we're talking about fear, which we usually think of as being over here in our future, right? We're afraid this is going to happen. We're afraid that's not going to happen. Don't make the mistake of thinking that these things are disconnected. They're not. They're totally connected. You know what I'm learning? I'm learning that in life, if I don't make peace with the past, I will almost always fear the future. And you know, Rahab, she had every reason to be afraid. She was about to risk her life hiding the spies and lying for them. Which raises an ethical question, doesn't it? Like, lying? What's up with that? Is that okay? Is that not okay? Would you be interested in my take on that? Just real quick, and then we'll keep moving. I'll throw this out there. I would compare what Rahab did to what people living in Europe during World War II did. People who took Jews into their homes and hid them. And then, you know, when Nazi soldiers came pounding on the door demanding to know whether there were Jews present, they lied. They said no. They chose life-saving over truth-telling when it wasn't possible to do both. To put it another way, two moral absolutes came into unavoidable conflict, and they chose the greater good, I believe, without guilt. That's how I feel about what they did. That's how I feel about what Rahab did. This is what Norm Geisler calls graded absolutism. You can Google it or read more about it. Uh, we can disagree about this and be friends, but at least I've given you something to argue about over lunch, right? So job done. Mission accomplished. If Rahab had played it safe, think of the regret that she would have had. Have you ever played it safe only to regret it later? Of course you have. What about that time you struck out looking? And all these years later, you're still like, oh, if only I'd taken a cut at that pitch. What about that time you knew the answer, but you could not get your voice to come out of your throat? Or that time that you wanted to volunteer, but you couldn't get your hand up over your head? Or that time that you couldn't decide about the house or the car and somebody else got it? Or that other time, you guys know the one, you were so close, so close to telling someone how you felt about them, but you chickened out. And then maybe you never had another chance. Rahab, she could have played it safe. She could have refused to hide the spies, to lie for them. Instead, she risked the life that she had, the only life she knew for the life that she wanted. To live heroically, you must always risk your life as it is. And that's crazy scary, which is why we're talking about facing our fears. I can imagine the pushback. You're like, well, Alan, this sounds like really risky stuff here. Do I look like a risk taker to you? Is that what you're thinking? 
Are you one of the many people who would describe yourself as having a low risk tolerance or maybe no risk tolerance at all? I'm totally not buying it. I was in a bookstore not long ago. You guys remember those? They had shelves, these things with pages. They were really cool. I liked them a lot. I took this book off the shelf and I looked at the title. The title was The 100 Most Dangerous Things in Everyday Life and What to Do About Them. Do not read that book. Oh man, that book wrecked my mind. Like, I had no idea that every year in the United States, more people are killed by teddy bears than by grizzly bears. Who knew? Like a button can come off, you can have a choking incident. Did you know that every year in the United States, 40,000 people are injured by their television set? I have to admit, more than once, we've been watching AFV in our house, America's Funniest Videos, seen a couple of kids, rough housing, they're rolling across the room, they roll into a piece of furniture that starts to wobble, a TV tumbles off, you can have a crushing injury. Against my better judgment, I'm gonna give you one more example. You ready for this? Did you know that every year in the United States, 60,000 people are injured using the toilet, right? So don't tell me you're not a risk taker, <laughs> unless you're prepared to hold it forever. The question, the question is not whether to risk. We take risks all the time. The question is what to risk. So will you risk the life that you have for the life that you want, the life that God wants for you? Or are you going to risk the life that you want, that life that God wants for you to hold on to the life that you have? The idea is to face your fears. Like what would you do tomorrow if you weren't afraid? Would you tell someone that you're being abused at home? Would you tell someone that you've lost your sobriety and that you think you're ready to go back to rehab? Would you quit that job that's left you feeling real uneasy about your ethics for the longest time? Would you, would you start a new ministry? Would you begin to write that book? You know, like what would you do if you weren't afraid? Would you tell that boyfriend or that girlfriend that you don't think it's gonna work out? What would you do if you're not afraid? Would you take that giant step of faith and make a first time commitment to Christ? What would you do if you weren't afraid? We're about to read verses like verse nine where Rahab uses fear words and verse 11 where Rahab uses fear phrases. And it's the craziest thing because by the time you get to the New Testament, it says nothing about Rahab's fear and everything about her faith. This just destroys what we think we know about heroes. We think heroes feel no fear, but Rahab was scared out of her mind. So what's up with that? It must not be that heroes feel no fear. It must be that they feel fear, but refuse to be controlled by it. Think of it. Now remember the most common command in the Bible, do not be afraid. One more time together. Do not be afraid, which teaches us, among other things, that there is a way of being where though we feel fear like everyone else with a pulse, we refuse to be controlled by it. Imagine for you a life not continually controlled by fear. Imagine thoughts not continually fueled by fear. Imagine future plans not continually formed in fear to live heroically. We let go of the past. We face our fears. And finally, we believe. All right, we're really going to start moving now. You ready to read a bunch of verses? Okay, here we go. Verse 8. Now, before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, that the terror of you has fallen on us, and that all the inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were on the other side of the Jordan, Sion and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And as soon as we heard these things, our hearts melted. Neither did there remain any more courage in anyone because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Now therefore I beg you, swear to me by the Lord, since I have shown you kindness, that you also will show kindness to my father's house and give me a true token and spare my father, mother, brother, sisters, and all that they have and deliver our lives from death. <clears throat> Excuse me. Now we've got some more verses to read. But first, if you'll let your eyes fall on verse 11. In verse 11, she says some amazing things. She speaks there of one God, singular. Notice also that she speaks of a personal God. So sorry. <clears throat> that last drink of water like went down the wrong pipe. It isn't even over and I'm all choked up. 
What she said, verse 11, one God, singular, personal God. She used the personal pronoun your. But check this out. She described an all-powerful, everywhere present at once God when she described him as being, quote, in heaven above and on earth beneath. This is the language of faith. What I'm saying is that Rahab had come to believe as evidenced by the act of faith that follows. So look at verse 14. So the men answered her, our lives for yours, if none of you tell this business of ours, and it shall be when the Lord has given us the land that we will deal kindly and truly with you. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was on the city wall. She dwelt on the wall. And she said to them, get to the mountain, lest the pursuers meet you. Hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Afterwards, you may go your way. So the men said to her, we will be blameless of this oath of yours, which you have made us swear, unless when we come into the land, you bind this line of scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And unless you bring your father, mother, brothers, and all your father's household to your own home. So it shall be that whoever goes outside the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be in his own head, and we will be guiltless. And whoever is with you in the house, his blood shall be in our head if a hand is laid on him. And if you tell this business of ours, then we will be free from your oath, which you made us swear. And then she said, according to your words, so be it. And she sent them away, and they departed. And she bound the scarlet cord in the window. Now, I'm coming way over here because you and I, we're hanging out together. And we are on the approach to Jericho. We can see the inner wall. We don't care about that right now. We're focused on the outer wall where Rahab lived. So go home, check three sources, get three different descriptions. Here's one. We're looking at a 15-foot earthen retaining wall. And then on top of that, a 25-foot brick wall. So with your eyes focused on Rahab's window, let's approach the city. Let's walk right up to the wall. Let's look up at her window. And we're looking up, what, like 40 feet, right? Which raises a question. What in the world was Rahab doing with a 40 or 50-foot rope laying around the house? I mean, did everybody in Jericho keep a 50-footer on the coffee table? Did only people living in the wall keep a rope on a hook by the window? I don't know. But I'm guessing these were not the first men to make a hasty escape from Rahab's place. Just, just throwing that little observation out there. <laughs> now, actually, all of this raises a better question than the rope question, as entertaining as that is to me. Like, like why didn't she just go with them? She could have led them to a cave in the hill country of Judah. And then when it was safe, she could have followed them to Acacia Grove. What if they didn't come back? Or what if they came back but didn't keep the deal? Or what if before they could come back and keep the deal, she had been found out? They would have killed her for sure if they knew what she was up to. <clears throat> There's only one reason. Her family. And that reason seems really obvious, except it's not. Not when you go back and consider that, as best we can tell, they wanted nothing to do with her or she with them. Could Rahab live heroically? Not unless she believed. Not unless she believed in God. And we see her coming to faith in verse 11. Not unless she believed in herself, by which I mean the woman that God was making her. And not unless she believed in the future, her future by which I mean the future that God was forming for her, but not for her alone. And this is the amazing thing, because when you think about Rahab, well, she had so many reasons not to care about anyone's future but her own. She'd been overlooked by the eligible bachelors of Jericho. She'd been used by immoral men from far and wide. She'd apparently been abandoned by her own family. Who would blame her for wanting to get out and never look back? That's what I would have done might be what you would have done too. But the idea here is to believe God for a bigger future that makes us and others bigger. As Christians, don't we love talking about the future? I mean, we love talking about vision and vision casting, and we love describing our God-given dream. Um, here's the thing. If your God-given dream is only big enough for you, that's not God's dream for you. God's dream for you will always be so big that there will be room in it for you and for others. And Rahab is the most amazing case in point. You know that by the time we get to chapter 6 
and the battle takes place that she and her family were spared. And then just two verses later, we find out that when the book of Joshua was written, that Rahab was alive and well and living as a part of their community. How cool is that? Not half as cool as this. Because you get to the end of the Old Testament, and then you turn through those blank pages between the Testaments. And then you turn to the first book of the New Testament and to the first chapter of the first book and to the first verses of the first chapter and there you find a tree. But not just any tree, a family tree. And not even just any family tree. It's Jesus' family tree. I have to describe it for you. It has these, these huge branches that go off in every direction. And on each branch is carved the name of a woman or a man who lived heroically. And on one branch for everyone to see, everyone in this auditorium, everyone watching the live stream, for those listening live on radio to picture in their minds, on one branch, look at it, R-A-H-A-B, Rahab. You know what that means, right? It means that not only had she become part of their community, but she'd fallen in love and gotten married. It means that she had kids who had kids who had kids until finally one of her descendants was Jesus, God in the flesh, the Savior of the world, who many rightly see in the color cord she was told to tie in her window, that scarlet-colored cord suggesting the blood that Jesus would one day shed on the cross to make all of this cool stuff that we're talking about possible. Oh my goodness. Wow, right? I mean, clearly Rahab had an unusual ability to believe God for a bigger, better future, but do you think that even Rahab could have imagined this? From, from prostitute to mother. How long? How long had Rahab worn a label that said prostitute? And God comes along and takes hold of the corner of that label and listen, rip! And in its place, he puts a new label that says mother. You heard a little bit of Miranda's story, not so much yet about mine. I'll just quickly say in a nutshell that around the same time frame, nine years ago, while pastoring Calvary Chapel in Austin, Calvary Austin we called it, just like you call this Calvary Aurora, my wife left me and our then 17-year-old daughter. It was just me and Lauren for her senior year until she graduated, and I sent her off to Bible college. And like Miranda, I lost everything. I lost my marriage. I lost my ministry. I lost all of my material things. I remember the day I returned my car. I remember the day I came home and found the foreclosure notice on the door of my house. And we both know what it's like to live a labeled life, to see the way that people look at you, to see the way they whisper to each other about you, to see them sneak cell phone pics of you to send to who knows who, to read the things that they're bold enough to send from behind a keyboard in the way of a text or an email or a message on social media. We know what it's like to live a labeled life. We know what it's like to have people in your life who won't ever let you forget. And God comes along and He takes hold of the corner of Miranda's divorced label and listen, rip! And in its place He puts a new label that says, wife, my wife. And he takes hold of the corner of my label, that divorce label, and listen, rip. And in its place, he puts a new label that says, husband, what label do you need to see and hear God tearing from you this morning? Failure, rip. Loser, rip. Sinner, rip. And what label do you need to see God putting in its place? You know, in just a moment, I'm going to pray. Miranda's going to come back out. We're going to lead you guys in one last worship song. 
during the song, while we're doing the song, we're going to have uh, people at the front to pray for you. I think there are people here who probably could really use a word of prayer right now. Maybe prayer that where you walk in with despair, you can walk out with hope. For others, maybe wanting to make that first-time commitment to Christ, to receive Him as your forgiver and your leader. But before I, before I even transition with a quick word of prayer, can I suggest what you guys might do when you get home this afternoon? Isn't that thoughtful of me to plan the rest of your day for you? See how I am? I want to suggest that when you get home today, you find a tattered old bath towel and a safety pin. And you wrap that towel around your shoulders and you pin it up tight and you begin to live heroically as you let go of past guilt and hurt. As you face your fears, feeling them fully but refusing to be controlled by them. And as you believe God for a bigger, better future, for you, for sure for you, but for the people around you too. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we're so grateful to you for bringing us here today, for joining us here today. So grateful, Lord, for your presence. So thankful for your voice speaking into our hearts, our minds, our lives. Right now, as our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, I, I'm not doing an altar call per se, but I just, I just want to speak a word over you. I, I just want to say that, well, maybe I could just admit that I could easily identify with Rahab, and I'm guessing that some of you could too. Don't you think that Rahab must have felt like an outsider? I have felt that way. Do you? Don't you think that Rahab must have felt like God was against her? Have you ever wondered? Don't you think that Rahab must have thought that because of the things that she'd done, because of the things that had been done to her, that God couldn't possibly love her still, couldn't, couldn't possibly be able to make something beautiful out of even the ugliest things in her life. This, this story blows all of that up. In this story, God proves that he makes insiders of outsiders, that he's for us and not against us, that no matter what you've done or what's been done to you, he loves you still with a fierce love. And he can still make something beautiful out of even the ugliest things in your life. Father, I'm so thankful for that. We collectively are so thankful for that, and we just want to open our hearts to that. I pray that even as we sing this song, even as some sing it with us, even as others pray silently right where they stand, even as others are brave enough to make their way to the front to receive prayer from a loving man or woman who will be here at the front to greet them, I pray that you would fill, know that you would flood our hearts with hope. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. We pray that you've been encouraged by this Bible study delivered live from the sanctuary of Calvary Aurora. For prayer or a copy of this study, call us at 877-30-GRACE. That's 877-304-7223. Or visit us online at calvaryaurora.org. Be blessed as you worship Jesus this week.